Hello, and welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Al Weinset. And I'm Max Frost. And today we're joined by Brent Orell. He's a resident scholar here at AEI. And instead of giving you the full bio, we will let him do that himself, because that is the very first question we asked him today, because he has a very long, complicated, yet interesting history. So without further ado, here's Brent. Brent, thank you for coming on Banter today. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're relatively new to AEI. What brought you here and what is your background? I was looking at your bio and I saw Department of Labor, HHS, the White House. seems like a lot. So can you just tell me what what your background is in? Sure. Happy to. Um, When you've been around for 30 years, you wind up doing a bunch of different things. I um, started my career in Washington on Capitol Hill as an intern uh, for a senator uh, from Oregon, where I'm from. I ended up staying on the Hill for 14 years, which I now tell people is probably seven years too long. Uh, But it was a great experience. I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, I worked in both the House and the Senate. I worked on both sides of the aisle. Uh, And I I just had a tremendous uh, experience there, very broad, covered a lot of different issues, but kind of fell into um, working on issues relating to poverty and family and social capital. So that was my that was my beginning of my career. Then I went into the Bush administration to work at the Department of Labor and the Center for Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, which I really enjoyed and did a lot of work on prisoner reentry uh, and criminal justice-related issues. Then over to HHS, uh, where I worked on poverty questions at the Administration for Children and Families. Then back to the Department of Labor after a short stint at the White House um, to run the Employment and Training Administration. So all of that sort of gives you a picture of kind of the pathway to working on uh, employment and poverty and families. And those are the really the key areas of interest for me. And then you, you mentioned off air that you've worked with Robert Doerr in the past. In what, what is the word? Capacity. Yeah. What sort of capacity did you work with Robert Doerr and what did he, did he, is he the one that recruited you to AEI? So let's do the capacity, the, the, yeah, how Robert and I got to know one another. Um, when he was first hired here at AEI, um, John Cusey, who runs our government affairs office, called me up and said, you know, Robert's worked in human services his whole life, but he hasn't worked in Washington. Um, would you mind um, spending some time with him? And I didn't mind at all yeah. because I love AEI and I, and I love the work that he was doing up in New York. Um and so, and you're not just saying that because he's the president now, right? <laughs> well, of course I'm saying that because he's the president. No, of course not. He's he is a wonderful guy and uh, somebody whose re- whose work I really do respect a lot um, uh, because of this of, of his focus on the importance of transitioning people um, from welfare uh, into work, um, which is really the pathway that everybody needs to follow in order to really. Um, take hold of and make uh, the American dream for themselves. So uh, at any rate, um, so we got to know each other a little bit. And then um, when Nick Eversack came out with his book on men, um, the problem of men, of male workforce disengagement. Men uh, Without Work. Men Without Work was the name of the book. Robert and I, being practical people rather than philosophical people, said, I wonder what we could do um, with this. And so he and I and a uh, professor at Georgetown University, Harry Holzer, uh, put together a report on sort of what are the policy tools available to us to encourage uh, men uh, who have 
become disengaged, come back into the workforce. So that was that report. Um, you know, it was a fascinating experience. First time I'd ever tried to write anything for AEI. And then another friend of mine, Ryan Streeter, who is our director of domestic policy, he and I worked together in the Bush administration on the faith-based initiative. And uh, so we started chatting about, you know, what the opportunities here might be. Uh, By that point, I had been in consulting for 10 years uh, on poverty programs. And and he said, well, let's just give it a try as a as a visiting fellow. And so I came in and did some work on uh, for for Ryan. And I think um, I just enjoyed it tremendously. It was it's been some of the most interesting work uh, I've ever had the privilege to do. So in uh, October of last year, um, we just decided to make it official and have me come on full time. So. so talking a bit more about your work here. Yeah. So. You know, everything that we're – so much of what we're hearing now is, on the one hand – sorry. Get it together. Uh, (laughs) So much of what we're hearing now, on the one hand, is that unemployment is at, you know, record lows, Mm -hmm. economies humming along swimmingly. Right. Um, Yet at the same time, on the other hand, you hear lots about inequality, poverty, Mm -hmm. low workforce uh, participation. Mm so how do you see the connection? How do you see the connection with all this? If you have unemployment so low, why are these other things seemingly worse? Are they not actually worse? I, I, it's a it's a, it's a incredibly good question as to uh, how our ideas about poverty have shifted um, since the establishment of the Great Society programs back in the 1960s. Um, in 1964, almost a third of Americans. 30%, almost a third, um, were uh, found to be living um, below what's called the consumption poverty line. And consumption poverty measures not just income, but other government transfers that allow people to actually purchase what they need in order to survive. So when you think about that, having a third of the country below that consumption poverty line was um, kind of how we got the Great Society. Um, there, you know, that's unacceptable uh, to for a country as wealthy as the United States to have a third of its people um, at, living in that kind of um, destitution. So we we stood up these big poverty programs, Medicare and Medicaid, and we forget that in 1964 most poor people were old in this country, and um, the SNAP program and other means tested. Uh, um, poverty programs. And when we combined that with pro-growth economic policies, what we got was this massive reduction in consumption poverty, which is now down to less than 3%. All right? So it's been an over a 90% reduction in consumption poverty in this country since 1964. That's an amazing achievement. And that's something that every American should be proud of. And yet, poverty is still with us, Right but it manifests itself differently. We now talk more about the problems of addiction, mm-hmm. of family um, structure, problems in family structure, um, out, of, out of wedlock or unmarried births, um, educational failure. These are the markers of poverty today, um, not, not consumption, not income. And 
my conviction that the policies that brought us from three percent or from thirty percent down to three percent are not going to get us from three percent to zero. We need a different set of policies, and that's really focused on. Um, things that are much closer to the heart in terms of family formation, community stability, social capital, those kinds of things which help us create not just a good life, but the good life, you know, that give people a sense of purpose and meaning. Yeah, you brought up Nick Eberstadt, who I remember reading maybe a year or two ago, his essay, um, I think it was called Our Miserable 21st Century. It might have just been an excerpt from his book, Men Without Work, but talking about how, I mean, Despite unemployment being at 3.7% or whatever it is, we have more men out of the labor force now as a percentage than we did in, I think, 2000. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of like a right-wing stereotype, I think, where they can just blame it, you know, it's all like on disability insurance and welfare is pulling people out of the labor market and enticing them into dependency. There's kind of a left-wing stereotype that it's just the evil drug companies getting people addicted. Mm -hmm. Is there truth to either of those, or what do you see as the reason why labor force participation rate, especially among men, is worse now than it was 20 years ago? Yeah, and and if you go back into the 1960s, effectively, it was almost 100% of men between the ages of 18 and 55 were either in school or in the in the workforce and um, that's that's fallen uh, into the 80s um, so it's it's a it, it's a big problem and I think there's there is disagreement over what causes what has caused that um, you know back in the 70s and 80s um, which you guys are too young to remember or actually weren't around then a no. uh, <laughs> little, little bit past <laughs> uh, yeah so uh, but there was a there was a big argument about the problem of black male unemployment in this country. What was going on with that? Why were black men having such a hard time finding jobs and keeping jobs? And there was a real, um, you know, dispute of whether this was something to do with the culture of work. That was sort of the conservative critique was, well, there's a there's a cultural problem here. You know, uh, something's going on in 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 the in black culture that prevents that's inhibiting attachment to the labor force um from the left they said well wait a second you know the 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 real reason is that the jobs left um the cities and they moved out to the suburbs and people can't get from the urban neighborhoods to the suburban neighborhoods so there's this argument about geographic mismatch and what's struck me as we've as we've seen the sort of male withdrawal from the workforce hitting the majority population white workers we don't hear about the culture argument so much anymore yeah. you know now everybody is open to the idea well this is really about an economic transition and the fact that uh, we've exported a lot of our manufacturing jobs and there just aren't jobs for men the way the way that there used to be I think that's really incumbent upon us to be honest about that. You know that um, we said some pretty uh, we said some pretty harsh things about the African American community 30 years ago, and now we can see you know that it that it wasn't all one side a one sided story. That the relative um, lack of jobs for that in in traditionally male dominated occupations like manufacturing. Uh, it makes a difference uh, in terms of people's ability to attach attach to the workforce. So, so that that probably is what started the landslide on this. You know, um, that's not the only reason. The decline of manufacturing jobs. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, right. The the 
the changes in the economy, the shift from a manufacturing economy to an information service economy and then an information economy has made it much more difficult, no doubt about that. Uh, men have not made it easier on themselves by adopting a bunch of bad habits um, that make it difficult for them to get back into the workforce. And uh, Nick's study was absolutely stunning in terms of looking at the time studies of how men who are not in the workforce actually spend their time. You know, they're spending it mostly on phones and in front of screens. It isn't like, you know, women in this society work all the time, you know, whether they're employed in the workforce or, or at home taking care of families, they are working all the time. Uh, rates of how they, the time studies, you know, really show that women, you know, are, they're, they're doing both work at, out of the house and in the house. They're not and, playing video games all day. Right, and, and, men are, and men are not doing either. The men who are not engaged in the workforce aren't doing either. So another, we just had, um, well, yesterday recorded it with Aparna uh, Matur. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's got this new op-ed coming out about why we need more low-skill immigration. And we mm-hmm. had a, kind of a debate with her yesterday about that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the debate being... More low-skill immigration pushes down wages, keeps people out of the labor market um, who otherwise would be interested in it, particularly low-skill, you know, oftentimes now white mm-hmm. Americans, males. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you come down in this debate? I know. I know uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard for me to, to uh, accept the idea that there's much of a case for low-skill immigration. Um, I, you know, until we see you know, evidence of skyrocketing wages among low-skilled workers. I don't think you can really make that argument very compelling. I'd be interested to read her paper on this and see what she um, see what she's saying. Yeah, her, her case is mainly that there's, you know, mil- a million, two million job openings right now that employers just cannot fill. And we brought up, well, shouldn't they be, I mean, if they really were that desperate for people, can't they, you know, train American workers that are not in the labor force? But mm-hmm. it seems like they, they really can't right now. And why yeah, is that? Yeah, I mean... So where I think immigration and, and this is, you know, where I th- we, we need to differentiate between types of immigration, yeah. immigration of highly skilled workers into the United States would be a huge plus for this economy, you know, um, and uh, and so I'm very much in favor of kind of an immigration policy that focuses on what's best for the United States, for our economy. And you can make a good case that the the more and the smarter and the you know more highly skilled people that we get in, the better. Um, I, but I haven't seen a compelling argument that that we that we need um, a lot of uh, new low skilled um, uh, low skilled workers. And I and I think that um, uh, we just need to be you know cognizant of the fact that for those who are not currently engaged in the workforce, you know, we've got uh, this 3% unemployment rate. If you're not in the workforce right now in the United States, you probably got a pretty good reason for not being in the workforce. There's some sort of significant barrier between you and, and a job. We need to be focused on what are those barriers and removing those barriers so that those who, who want to work, who are able to work, come back into the workforce. So you mentioned how the you know the decline uh, or the change in the economy from manufacturing to more service based and information based has 
created a barrier for a lot of men that want to be in the workforce. And you always hear about, you know, when we sign free trade agreements, they benefit everybody, maybe not everybody equally, and we can at least retrain the people that don't benefit from those. There's this I, economist David Otter, I think, did a study yeah. about the China trade shock, and whole communities in North Carolina just got kind of devastated. And mm-hmm. there's always these promises of job retraining. Mm-hmm. What does that really entail, and who... Who bears the burden for that? Is it like employers that should be doing the training? Is it the government? Is their government capable of this? It's a, another another really great question. There was a New York Times Magazine article probably a month or six weeks ago, I'd recommend. It was on the closing of the Lordstown, Ohio um, Chevy plant. If you've ever driven the Ohio Turnpike uh, to Cleveland, it, about a quarter of the way through, there is this massive plant uh, on the right-hand side if you're going west. It employed, you know, about 6,000 people um, in this plant, and GM sort of promised that they wouldn't close it. And then in November, they suddenly just decided to close it. Um, And so 6,000 people are out of work. And do we have programs that that are supposed to help in those communities when something like that happens? Yes. Programs of the Department of Labor, um, the National Emergency Grants and Dislocated Worker Grants, and um, you know programs I used to manage when I was when I was in the federal government. Uh, trade adjustment assistance is another uh, program. My sense is though that um, those programs are not very well structured. They don't work very effectively, and they really don't address the full range of problems that communities experience when a dislocation like that happens. It isn't just the jobs. You know, it's impacting people's health care. It's impacting um, all of the businesses that surround or that are inside that community that depend on the wages that are being, coming out of that plant. So I, I really think, and, uh, and I'm, I'm spending some time talking with people both here at AEI and elsewhere about whether we need um, to do a real serious look at those programs and ask whether we could do this better. There are countries that have better systems, and we should probably be looking at them. The the reason I look over at Matt, yeah. I just um, well, I just came back from a vacation to Europe, and I was talking to a friend of mine um, there who's German, mm. and she was talking about these programs they have in Germany yeah. to get people back in the workforce. Yeah. And it seems, I mean... To me, to me, there's a, there are. I'm not a big fan of the European Economic Project overall, mm-hmm. but there are certain programs in place in a lot of these, particularly northern, northern European um, mm-hmm. countries, that do a really powerful job of inse- at least incentivizing people to mm-hmm. get back in the war in the yeah. workforce. Yeah. And there's a lot of hostility to me. It seems here, the idea of bringing any kind of, you know, big government program yeah. to help with that. Yeah. Um, oh, you're a communist. <laughs> so some would say, um, no. So yeah, what, I mean, what do you think about that? Or, or where, if you say there's, I, 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 I don't know what I think about it yet. I mean, I, my sense is though that um, a lot of the anger that we saw erupt in the 2016 election that finally became obvious to us was, in part, a result um, of our inattention to the kinds of pressures and problems that these economic transformations create. And so I think we need to take a good hard look as a country as to what we're doing. I'm not in favor of trade protectionism. Yeah. I think that's bad for everybody. Uh, in the long term, that's uh, that's bad for our children, bad for our grandchildren. But we need something beyond what we're doing right now for current workers. So rather than thinking of it as protecting trade or protecting industries or protecting jobs, 
we should be thinking about protecting workers um, and helping workers make these transitions. I am not a big believer that retraining programs, sort of strictly speaking, like we're going to take somebody that was working in an auto manufacturing and we're going to assign them to a program that's going to retrain them as a healthcare technician. I don't think that kind of thing works, but I think there are ways of providing resources for people to make their own transition. That's where I really um, come down on this I, at, at this point is um, uh, this should be worker-directed, not government-directed. Uh, it should be um, supporting people and making their own decisions, their own choices um, in how to best manage their own transition rather than having government try to manage it. With you 100% on the anti-trade protectionism, especially it seems like I mean, you know, automation is probably a bigger threat to a lot of jobs than trade is. But on that note, you've, you talked about automation and artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. if the robots are coming for all of right. our jobs and right. whatnot and how you got to be, you know, what is it, uh, vigilant, con con uh, constant vigilance to, you know, upgrade your skills. Yeah. As, you know, just as two 24-year-old dudes here that, you know, <laughs> might be automated out of a job at some point, what, like, what type of skills should we be, should I, we be working on? Next banter I, episode you know, will be recorded yeah, by a I, robot. I really think that think tanks are probably the best insulated jobs in the country, so I don't <laughs> yeah. know about, uh, about having to worry about your current jobs. Yeah. Um, it, there, there's a very interesting new book out by guy by the name of Richard Baldwin, it's called The Globotics Upheaval. And I've, in fact, I've invited him to come to AEI in October to talk about this. And he was in the Bush administration, Council of Economic Advisors, and now he teaches over in Geneva at the Graduate Institute there. But he makes a very compelling case that the kind of um, competitive pressures that workers in the manufacturing sector have faced, those kinds of pressures are building on the service sector. And by that, he does not mean people working in retail or something like that. He means people that are, um, you know, sort of skilled professionals, accountants, computer scientists, lawyers, you know, people who whose jobs have been relatively insulated from um, global um, competitive pressures because of the internet revolution that is ongoing and the ex the extension of broadband into comparatively uh, new areas, you know, where uh, I, I haven't actually gone online to look at this, but I understand that there are these sites that sort of aggregate talent uh, around the globe. So if I need a website built, rather than going down the street and paying somebody $5,000 to build a website for me. I can go online and look for a web designer, could be anywhere in the world, that will do it for $15 an hour. $15 an hour in India is actually a good middle-class yeah. existence. Yeah. So that that process, I think, is beginning, it will begin to take hold, and that's actually one of the reasons I'm interested in this worker transition question is that I think that whole classes of people who haven't experienced that could that could happen. I don't know that it definitely will, but it could, and we need to be thinking about how do we build policies that are flexible enough to help people respond to changes that we can't yet really see. Yeah. I think flexible, I mean, that that's the, to me, it seems like that's such an issue. We'll need such a nimble mm -hmm. apparatus in place mm -hmm. to deal with like that mm -hmm. kind of, with those kind of shifts. Something else that we, that 
Matt and I talk about a lot is college and college tuition. Mm-hmm. You know, should the government be paying for it? All that kind of stuff. From my perspective, it seems like there's almost, you know, there's a six-figure price tag to entering the workforce, in right. the, at least into the service sector, right. um, information sector. By that token, I guess the, the question that then that would inspire is, should college be as much of a right now as high school, which you used to need to enter manufacturing jobs, and now you need college to enter the um, service sector? Mm-hmm. Or are we looking at this, is that the completely wrong way to look at it? it you will have noted, I think, the... Um, the ongoing debate, particularly among conservatives, about whether college is a good idea or not. You know, like, are we, are we spending too much on this? Are we sending too many people to college? And I think people need, to, you know, they need to do a careful cost-benefit analysis of, you know, is, is college, am I really cut out for college? You know, do I, is that something that really fits me? Or should I be looking at alternative forms of education and training that can connect me more quickly to the job market. Um, Having said all of that, the economic payoff to a bachelor's degree is still very significant uh, above a high school degree. I mean, you're you're talking about a million dollars over a lifetime. That's a lot of money, and that's certainly worth the hundred thousand that it would take you to acquire. The BA if, or BS, if that's what you if that's what you feel like you're suited to, uh, and I and I think our friends up in our education studies uh, are even uh, firmer on the question of graduate credentials. You know, like those pay even more, and they're worth um, they're worth the investment um, to get those degrees. In in general, education really pays. I'm not one of the conservatives. So you know, college doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Uh, if you if you've got the acumen for it, it's it's very much worthwhile. And you know, talking with Stan Voiger and others, you know, here at AEI, the data is pretty compelling that countries and regions that have lots of people with BAs do better economically. So I'm I'm pro college education. Uh, I, I um, for those who have the the academic acumen to do it. But if it were to become free and everybody went, then then the correlation, I would think, would probably disappear. I've, I've Just to admit, my biases here are shaped by Brian Kaplan. George Mason and yeah. Thomas wrote a book about a year and a half ago yeah. called The Case Against Education, where basically the whole thesis was college a college diploma is 80% signaling, 20% actually like talent that you're acquiring from that. And his case in point is that, look, the, the difference between a college person that holds a college degree and the person that went to college for three and a half years is astronomical. And it's not because in that final semester you get imparted with all these new skills. It's because in that final semester you acquire a piece of paper that says you graduated. Right. And it's the piece of paper that is really benefiting. Yeah. So, I mean, I I went to college. I really enjoyed it. I, I'm happy I did. <laughs> but the it, it does seem like they, the more libertarian wing of this right-wing debate has a point, too, that if college itself is not actually imparting all of these skills, then Maybe it's not the end-all, be-all that we've made it out to be. Yeah, and, and like I said, I'm not a, I, I'm not an absolutist on this, I, but I do think that in a, in an economy in which higher and higher levels of skill are required in order to to advance and to get those um, middle-income jobs that we think are so important, I think that on an in, individual basis. People, I mean, they have to make the cost-benefit analysis for themselves, but I think in general, uh, it it's still demonstrably true that if you have that degree, you're going to have an easier time penetrating the labor market. 
I don't disagree with Brian Kaplan that this is in part, in large part, a signaling thing. I don't think that signal is meaningless, however. (laughs) I think that uh, the ability to engage and sustain a four-year commitment to college education sends a very important signal um, to employers. So That's true. You've been kind of caught in the middle of a, like a month-long debate, Max, and I have been having about college at lunch. You're welcome to join us someday. Uh, I'm honored. I'm honored to be caught. Um, so. we're, we're almost out of time. So while we're on the topic of college and skills and what we need for the future, my, I have a younger brother. He probably doesn't listen to this podcast. But if he did, he's, a, he's about to be a sophomore at college. Yeah. Like, what should college students right now be majoring in, do you think, or what type of skills should they be acquiring to make them flexible enough to survive the workforce in the future? Uh, You guys really ask great questions. Um, Thank you. I taught, last week I taught a summer honors program course um, on poverty, and I got this question from one of the students who's a, first of all, she's a rising sophomore. I'm like, what's a rising sophomore doing here? But I mean, she was like, incredible, just brilliant. I mean, she was great. Uh, But she asked this question, well, what should I be, what should I be studying? And I said, I think the most important factor right now, you know, for the foreseeable future is that you, that you develop a broad, flexible skill set. That's what people, I think, need. That's what the labor market is signaling um, to us. You know, we've, got, we've gotten kind of stuck in this rut of, well, if you want to succeed in life, you need to go into science, technology, engineering, and math. There's no doubt that there are some advantages to that. There are also some real questions about whether that's, that strategy has longevity to it. Um, we, see, we see a lot of people leaving STEM fields within 10 years. We don't know exactly why, but part of it is that they get stuck. Uh, their skills atrophy. They no longer feel relevant in that, in that workforce, and so they drop out. So with automation taking over so many um, tasks, including a lot of entry-level technology tasks like coding. Yeah. You know, computers can now code themselves in some cases. You don't need so many coders. So with that, with that happening, there's going to be a premium on these what are called non-cognitive or soft skills. Are you good at problem solving? Do you work well in teams? Do you have a good reading and writing comprehension? Can you persist in tasks? Those are all things that aren't sort of job-specific oriented. They apply to all jobs. Everybody needs all of those things. And so what I encourage people to do is, you know, you've got a major area that you're focusing on, but you need to get out and sample other fields, you know, and develop a broader understanding of what it means to be a human being and what it means to work with other human beings. And and so, like, not getting so specialized and so narrow uh, too early. There's a great new book out on this, a guy by the name of David Epstein called Range. I have that written down on the sheet. Uh, okay, you have it written down. I haven't read the book, so I didn't have time to ask about it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a terrific book. I can't recommend it highly enough. And if I can just take a couple minutes to describe this. Um, so he, he basically uh, makes an argument that there we, we've got two theories of skill building in, in, in the West right now. One is sort of the Tiger Woods model, and one is the Roger Federer model. So the, the Tiger Woods model is that you start hauling a golf club around with you when, as soon as you can walk, basically, which is what Tiger Woods' story is, and you just, you just hone that, and you hone it, and you hone it, and you hone it, and you become the world's greatest golfer. Roger Federer, his mom was a tennis coach, 
And she wouldn't let him just do tennis. She made him do everything. She made him play soccer. She made him play badminton. She made him run track and swim and do all of the all of this stuff. Get this really broad exposure. He actually didn't choose tennis until he was in high school. Uh, and then he became the world's greatest tennis player. And there's a growing body of evidence that um, some of the the really great athletes that are emerging right now have that kind of similar experience where they are. Uh, getting this broad exposure to a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different athletic activities, and that that builds a better balanced um, athlete that's able to then when they make a choice to focus are able to really excel. I think there's, uh, I think that's true for the rest of us. I think we need broad exposure, a lot of sampling of different things, not not forcing ourselves to focus too early, to experiment, uh, as Arthur said on one of his podcasts, uh, Arthur Brooks, our, our president, uh, you know, we need to treat our life as a startup. That means trying stuff. And that means failing fast and trying something new if it doesn't work. But try a bunch of different things. So that's really my, my um, counsel. And I'm sure that most parents who are listening to this will say, absolutely not. I want my kid to focus. I want him to get a degree in computer science. And I want them to have a good life uh, that way. But I, I think there's a lot of evidence that says otherwise. That's good news for the two liberal arts majors interviewing right now. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to yeah. leave it there. Brent, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Well, thank you all for listening. We hope that you enjoy it. If you did, please be sure to like, rate, subscribe, and most importantly, comment so we have something to read in this awkward <laughs> post-interview period. Yeah, we never know what to talk about, and I'm sick of hearing about Max's European vacation. So, <laughs> On the bright side, on the, on, the, uh, on the next episode, I will be back from a recent trip to South America. Maybe I can start talking about redesigning our entire social safety net to mirror the Colombians. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about that. First step, don't get kidnapped. <laughs> Second step, have a nice trip. Come on, see. All right. See you next time. <laughs>